Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Hey there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. My name is Joy Rios, and today we have a special guest because our guest's not a woman. <laughs> not oh, the- is this? I didn't know I was that yeah. special. This is great. You're not the first man that we've had on the show, but we typically don't. Like, yeah, I know. Damn. So it's extra special. <laughs> Well, thank you. I feel very. I'm, I feel like an honourable woman in we, this case. Well, yeah, you should have. You should feel honoured because this. I do. Yeah, good. So I brought you on. First of all, can you take a moment to introduce yourself? Okay. So my name is Dr. Nick Vanterhaden. Most people know me as Dr. Nick. I am a host of a couple of podcast shows, The Incrementalist and Healthcare Upside Down. And I'm a principal at ECG Management Consulting. And uh, historically, I practiced medicine as an emergency room physician. And we have known each other for quite a while. Oh, steady on, steady on. Not that long. (laughs) Yes, yes, we have. (laughs) We have. But uh, the reason that we're here to talk today is because of an article that was written. And so, and it was based a lot on an experience that you had. And it has to do with healthcare and data and insurance and all of the patient experience. And so I would like you to, if you don't mind, explain what happened and then let's talk about it. Okay. Can I go back as far as sort of the original uh, challenges? So uh, for the most part, I consider myself fairly uh, fit and healthy. I'm reasonably active. I, you know, cardio exercise, high intensity interval training. And then at one point, uh, a couple of years ago now, I was in an exercise routine and I felt like I injured myself. And I sort of went through this really quick decline, struggled with any kind of exercise. I went literally off a cliff in terms of what I was doing. And I started to get hip pain. I thought I had a tear in my uh, acetabular cartilage. And I struggled with all of this. And initially I went to see an orthopedic surgeon who wanted to replace my hip. And I said, hmm, I'm not quite ready for that, to be clear. I feel like I'm not in the zone. And I went through some PT. I had some fortune of getting some folks that tried to reverse it, but it it persisted. And I went to see my family practitioner and had a 15, 20-minute conversation with him. And to his credit... And I say this because I'm a physician and hadn't thought about it. And, you know, okay, that's not surprising because we don't always think about it when it's ourselves. 
But he suggested, well, you know, you're getting this bone pain, hip-related, maybe you're vitamin D deficient. And I thought, wow. I actually thought, why why didn't I think of that? (laughs) So we ordered a vitamin D test. I go and have the test. Actually, the same day, I think. And it came back. And I I was low. I mean, pretty low. And I thought, brilliant. And it was a $20 fee for a year's supply of vitamin D supplementation, which I did, and thought nothing more about it. And then about three months later, I get this note from my insurer, Cigna in this case, who said, uh, we're rejecting this. It wasn't medical, medically necessary. And I look at this as a clinician and as a patient, and I'm going, wait a second. A, who, who said this and what did they see? And B, it was medically necessary. It was, it was based on a conversation and a detailed review. In the note, it said you can combat this. So I said, okay, I'm going to fight this denial. So I submitted the paperwork and it came back. It went to Cigna and they said, no, it's still denied. And then in a paragraph underneath, it said, but the regulations say that you can go to the external body in Maryland, which is where I live, and submit the same thing. And I thought, well, that's what I'm doing. Now, this isn't a huge amount of money, but it was significant. So I submitted And that clinician reviewed all the notes and goes, well, of course, this is medically indicated. We should, it should be upheld. So it was upheld and everything was reversed. A short while later, there was a request and some discussions about who's had these experiences. And that was how I got involved with ProPublica, shared the story, talked to the reporter. And what was really interesting about this was they went with the Freedom of Information, or FOIA as it's known uh, colloquially, a process to get the records. And not only did they get the records for my actual rejection, but for my the corresponding 199,999 other people that have been rejected by the same physician over a two-month period. And when you divide that up in terms of time available and how much time you would be able to review the documents and the content... 1.2 seconds. You're like, how is that even possible? I can't even open Twitter in that amount of time. Oh, well, you're obviously not a high-performing <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And as I've been quoted as saying, that's just not right. And I was the lucky one. And, you know, obviously in this particular instance, I was featured in the article because, A, I fought it. And when we talk about percentages, they actually dived into this and... In the first round of denials, less single-digit percentage people will fight the denial. Mm -hmm. And then of those that are denied again, which is most, the same number, or far less, so 0.0%, are willing to try and fight again. That's awful. Think about all of those. And who knows what their tests were, This was an algorithm. Exactly. And that's the part. So it's the technology, brand new technology that supposedly is going to be supporting us to do less work, right? Or like take the few clicks away, as many clicks you can away from a doctor. Like that's reducing burnout. So on one side, oh, good for them. That's burnout. But the effects of that on all of the patients is significant, especially considering when you do the math, right? Of all those number of people Say that they have a, a bill of, what, $400? Right. Not a huge amount of money, 
But I'm sure that Cigna's making the bet that if they can get $400 from however many tens of thousands of people a month, that adds up pretty quickly, and then they're not going to appeal it. Right. And let's be clear, on a couple of levels, first of all, I know we want to remove burnout from physicians, but maybe not from the physicians that are doing the denial, right? I'm just going to say. And then when you look at all of those people that are paying, in fact, it was more troubling when you dive into the detail of that because they found a corporate presentation that talked about this specific program and they weighed up how many individual patients would combat this and actually compete against it. And they try and set it at a level that's low enough that you go, hey, it's not worth it. And they estimated that they would make an extra $2.4 million by introducing it on this particular code. So can I stop for a second? Sure. Uh, that actually feels like a grand scale of medical gaslighting in a way that we've all been sold that where our objective is to do better for patients and provide better care. But you're telling me the presentation, and understand, healthcare is a business. We can't get away from that, at least in the current model that we're in. But at the same time, at what cost? And that's what really bothers me about this. And I, I say this again frequently, and I, I believe it, although some people push back. I guess it depends on the, the group that you're talking about. But let's talk about the people in healthcare, the ones delivering the care. That's everybody from the clinical staff to all the supporting staff, to the people that clean the rooms, that serve the meals, all the way through to administration. I do not buy for one second that anybody walks into work every day going, right, how can I fiddle the system? How can I make this a miserable experience? I just don't buy it. And what we're doing is introducing programs that essentially treat people that way and assume the worst case scenarios. And I, as you know, Joy, you've known me long enough to know, I, my glass is full, mm -hmm. half full of whiskey and half full of air. <laughs> And I, I bring that to life just generally. I believe that. And I believe it in this case, even in the case of the insurer. I, it, it is hard for me to understand how somebody could just with a straight face stand up and say that because ultimately what is their job? It is also to take care of the patient. And how is that taking care of the patient? It's not. Well, and especially considering, this is the other part, like with... You know how much money these organizations are making, and I think we can fairly call out Cigna in this case, but like, and also patients, like the amount of money that they need in order to get by. So if you compare, I don't know, the CEO's pay in an hour, which <laughs> is often comparable to what many patients make right. in a year, right. this level of disconnect is mind-blowing. It is. It's entirely wrong. It doesn't benefit anybody in any way. And, you know, just for the benefits of a balanced discussion, let's try and answer the question as to why you might do this. And we start with the, the sort of challenge that these insurers have where physicians overorder tests. We certainly see that. I think that's, you know, present. But again, I don't think the majority of physicians come in and say, right, how can I order as many tests as possible? It's not like that's good for their patients either. Right. It might be good for their wallet. And I know there are exceptions. But what do we do in other instances? And I pick on this particular story because for me it's compelling. 
in the educational system, there was a whole cheating expose. I think it was in the Chicago area and the schools. And what was happening was the teachers were changing the results. And it was because of the incentives that were in place. I don't call out the teachers because I understand why. But what did they do to find it? They used the data on the back end that shows very clearly this statistical oddity and said, oh, what's going on here? Let's go and find out. And uncovered it and exposed the individuals and called them to task. That's how we should deal with that kind of challenge in healthcare, not by saying, let's punish 100% of the people with behavior that is not helping anybody because we want to catch that small minority of folks who may be misbehaving. And even if they are, like the teachers, they might be doing it because of the system that is forcing them to do it. Right. We all come to this caring about patients. I know you do because I listen to all of the things that you talk about and the great work that you do. And yet, here we are with a large corporation and you go, why? Make it make sense. I'm scared about technology. As much as we get excited about technology, this particular article was one that hit home where I'm just... I also recently watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix and, you know, realizing, of course, our addiction to technology and like the incentives that we are to stay connected, but also thinking about AI and ChatGPT and like the potential specifically within the next three years of what is going to be possible. And on one side, there is so much good that Mm -hmm. can come from this and will absolutely come from it. But it is really, really scary to be thinking that the healthcare system in particular and the ones that are supposedly trying to take care of us could potentially be using that technology for, you know, arguably like essentially evil ways, like on the flip side of that coin. And it frightens me. I don't, that's not even a question. I'm just putting that out there. (laughs) But but I think my response to that is, and you bring up ChatGPT, and I, I'm, I'm going to call out the positive again. You Please. know, glass full. I think it's wonderful. I, I've been in this space of AI, NLP. It's you know, and most of the people in the space are going, well, yeah, this stuff has worked. It's not new. And sure, they've made some incredible progress. It's it's phenomenal. What's important and what's positive about it, and I think for everybody listening that's in healthcare that cares as much about it as I do as a patient, as I do as a physician, as I do as a parent as a son, all of those things, you have to dive into this. You cannot ignore it. There's, there is no putting this genie back in the bottle. Mm-hmm. Chat GPT is here to stay. It does some amazing things. And we have to explore it. And we have to explore it in the good and the bad ways because if we don't understand the bad ways, we don't know that that's a possibility. And the reason I say that is the onus is on all the good people in healthcare to actually take this on, understand it, and then be in a position of authority to say, this is the way that we want to use it. I should have said, this is the way. (laughs) I'm a fan of that show. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing that's um, interesting about that aspect is like, okay, the ProPublica article had some anonymous sources, right? Mm -hmm. And so it was people within the organization that took a stand and said, Mm -hmm. hey, this isn't right. But is that what it takes, like a watchdog? Because it it seems to me as though we're not in a position to trust that the organization would do the right thing for the right reasons and essentially put the patient over the profit. 
Right, and I can't speak to those individuals. I know that if I was in that, at least I believe if I was in that circumstance, and you know, it's a bit like a burning building and going in and rescuing people. You don't know until it, you face it. But I mean, I did in this instance. I can't say that this was an easy decision because I'm fairly well known in the industry. It's not like anybody says, well, who's Dr. Nick? So who's this guy? You know, I've had a lot of feedback. And I will say, I think without exception, it's been very positive from all levels, from CEOs of hospitals, from colleagues, physician friends, you know, across the board, all very positive about it. But that doesn't change my fear. But I believe that this was right. I want to be on the right side of history in this particular instance. And I would say that's true of folks that are working in that circumstance. And... You know, I've got to be honest, I, I'm looking at this physician who stamped the 130,000 and I, I want to, I'd have an open conversation with her to try and say, why are you doing this? You must know. Well, that- I, and that's, they can't be the only person. No. Obvi- yeah, it's obviously not just that individual. So right. it's a systemic thing. They must be put, put in that position too. Right. How does one push back against that? Let me give you another example of somebody that's doing this that, you know, got called out. So there's an orthopedic surgeon who had a a hip replacement that was declined. And like me, he said, this doesn't seem right. So he went chasing and it ultimately came, he discovered that the individual that had declined it was working for this particular insurance company and he had been removed from practicing clinical medicine because he had put in a hip backwards. So we call him the backward hip guy. Okay. (laughs) And this is who is overseeing an experienced physician who, like all of the physicians that I interact with, says, what can I do that's best for my patient? And if there are still folks allowed to do that, then maybe that's part of the problem. Maybe we should be focusing on those bad apples. I mean, I, I, I'm ruthless when it comes to behavior. I, I, it is an imperative that anybody in healthcare has the highest level of ethics because people trust us. Mm-hmm. And if you lose that trust, you lose any relationship and any possibility of delivering well, the best care. Well, it's literally with their livelihood. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're the people that they love the most. They care, you know, the people that they care about the most. And it's not just... Livelihood physically, but livelihood financially. And it's like, how much is at risk every time somebody enters the hospital system or the ER or even decides to take an ambulance ride? Like, there's a risk to that. And it's... So can I tell you a secret? And I I guess it's not much of a secret, but it's uh, it's not something I talk about a lot. But I've been very clear with my family. Under no circumstances allow an ambulance to pick me up. Mm-hmm. Put me in the car and take me because I do not want to risk that. How ridiculous is that? That is a, an outrage to me. And I'm a physician. I know that's the worst possible thing to do in an urgent circumstance. And I'm, I'm worried about how I might behave for my family members mm-hmm. who maybe don't make that decision, but I'm thinking about it in those terms. I shouldn't be put in that circumstance. No, you shouldn't. I get to experience both Mexican and U.S. healthcare system, and it's only been recently. But in the last six months, there's been a particular instance that I'm just like, you know what? I'm leaning on Mexico right now. You know what's interesting? They have a menu, and they'll tell you how much stuff costs. 
before you even get there. Like, I, I'm going to phrase this very carefully because I, I, when I came across the border, I, I went to San Diego and crossed in and I was essentially crossing the border to buy medications. Yep. And when I came back through, the customs officer said, why were you over there? And I had to stop myself from saying I'm, I'm carrying drugs. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm bringing I, drugs across I, the border. <laughs> so I was doing a drug run. Yeah. No, I, so I didn't, but I had to stop myself. But what I was doing was a medication run. Once again, preposterous. Yeah. Who does that? Yeah. Oh, wait, Americans do that. All the time. Yes. Yeah. I mean, and, and it has a stigma to it, but I know a ton of people that do, you know, medical tourism. They're coming down and either getting their body redone or just for the dentist or, right. you know, certainly for medications. Like it's very common. All the time. All the time. All the time. And you know, you know, it continues to sort of pummel. And and I guess my question is, when are we gonna see some real change in this? Because I feel like this has just been getting worse and worse. Well, that's the sad part. And especially like the amount of time we have spent working in healthcare and it doesn't feel like we're actually making progress. The hill that we keep pushing up. You know, or the boulder we keep pushing up the hill, just the hill feels like it's growing. That's a fra- famous <laughs> Greek story, if I recall. Yeah, I believe so. <laughs> just, we're going to be doing this for a lifetime, apparently. I've got to believe that my glass is full and that we can. And I think perhaps the inflection point, and, you know, maybe I'll pick on chat GPT. I, I, sure. Random thought, but yes, it can be used for bad. But it can also be used for good. So imagine taking, and I heard just in, in the last few days from somebody who said, I received you know, my lab results, I couldn't make head nor tail of them, and I copied them. Into ChatGPT? Posted them into ChatGPT and said, make sense of this, and it produced this fantastic review, content, assessment. And let's be clear, you know, there's all sorts of challenges with hallucinations and errors and so forth. But in this particular case, taking data, this, you know, safe activity, and perhaps it's the same for fighting the denials. Take my denial letter and write a, uh, a rejection. That's already, ha- that's already happening. Well, at least I, like re- uh, write an appeal letter. Right. But, yeah, patients are already doing it. I actually really advocate for ChatGPT, and I am a huge proponent. In fact, I just got access to the plugins, <laughs> and I'm excited to start using oh, them and that too. Oh, Joy's the person yeah. to know. I didn't know this. Okay, got to get connected. Yeah, I've been using it to help write HOA rules and regulations, bylaws wow. for a nonprofit, travel organization, like itinerary planning. It is... Super, super powerful. But like in as much as it has an opportunity to do good, it has, and not specifically chat GBT, I'm talking technology in general and AI. And your example is one that I just want to call out that is just like, how, how, how? Or let us all be cognizant and make sure that when we see something, we say something because it is a reflection of what we put into it. And so- we have to be careful like who is who is pulling the levers and who's in charge of the drivers and how does that information or the results of whatever the algorithm you know puts out like what do we do with it and, and <laughs> you know take that to the next level which you know that was partly my point about bringing it up is jump in <laughs> start playing have fun i had fun i got it to write me a rap and i'm hopeless at that kind of stuff a, a rap rap on healthcare Chat GPT in healthcare in the style of M&M. Yep. It was phenomenal. Yep. 
The only sad thing was I couldn't sing it, so it just it didn't go well. <laughs> well, you can do karaoke. It should be fine. <laughs> oh, hell no. <laughs> There's not enough whiskey in my uh, collection that would allow me that to happen. I do not believe that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've seen those pictures. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I honestly... I genuinely love ChatGPT, and if anybody has ideas, I mean, I've got, I've had a ton of already like ways that we can use it for good, but we just need to keep our eye out, and right. especially over the next couple of years, because it's going to get more sophisticated and exponentially so. Right. So, I guess I'll, my final question would be along like, what has been the feedback? What uh, from since this story has released, how have people been engaging with you? It's really extraordinary and the timing was not deliberate to the conference that uh, you know I was attending, but it happened to fall right around that time. And I was a little bit, I, I, I was genuinely very nervous about it. I struggled and I was helped along the way by the reporters who I found to be exceptional in terms of the way that they were behaving their attention to make sure that they got the facts right and quotes and all of that. I arrive, and let's be clear, when it, the story dropped, even before I knew that it, I knew it was happening because they did let me know, but I got notification from friends going, oh my God, because mm-hmm. I didn't tell that many people. And then there was a sort of essential flood. It took off online, both in you know, all of the social channels that sort of had that number of friends and all in a positive way. I think, you know, people appreciated that I was doing so. I would say that the word that made me most nervous was those that called me brave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it didn't make me feel better, but I understood what they were saying. And then here at, at the conference that I was at, I had random people that I'd never met, and I know lots of folks and people that knew me came up and mentioned it, but people that I've never met came up and said, I really appreciate you doing that. And that for me was, I was grateful for that because it made me feel better about that decision. Well, I think it instills trust for me. One is like, you know what, especially we go to these conferences and we get to hear all of the excitement and all of the best case scenarios and the theory of all of the good things that these companies are doing. But I feel like what you did was really shine a light on the practical aspect of it and what was happening in practice. And it's like not hot air. It's just real talk. And sometimes I feel like that's exactly what we need. So I wanted to say thank you for just speaking up about it for taking a stand. And I appreciate you sort of taking the time and and specifically allowing me to appear and, you know, an honorary woman on the podcast. I know you've had others, but uh, obviously that's uh, that's truly a privilege. I mean, I recognize the work that you're doing and, you know, the reason for your focus. So thank you for trusting me to come on and share that story and also sharing, allowing me to share the story. So thank you. It has been my pleasure. For our audience, if they want to follow you or get in touch or read the story, where would you direct them? You'll find me on LinkedIn. In fact, if you can't find me, the internet's down is how I feel because <laughs> I've got an unusual name, but at Dr. Nick, D-R-N-I-C, the number one is on Twitter. And then Nick VT is my LinkedIn you know, suffix or whatever. And, you know, for the most part, you can get all of my contact details and indeed the story through any of those channels. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Nick. Thank you. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about us or this guest by going to our website or visiting us on any of the socials with the handle hit like a girl pod. Thanks again. See you soon. 
Again, thank you so much for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. I am truly grateful for you, and I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast, or maybe leave us a rating or review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All those things help us podcasters out so much. I'm the show's host, Joy Rios, and I'll see you next time.